This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and with me as he is every week is the wonderful Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you today? I'm doing great. You know why? It's because I've confirmed everything for Star Trek Las Vegas. This will be Ah. my first Star Trek Las Vegas, and I've got the, the hotel at the Rio, I've got the flights, I got the tickets. I'm pumped. I got two months to get ready and get all excited, which I'm already there excited right now. So I'm pumped. Ah, I'm totally jealous of you. Dan, I I can't wait to see you there. Uh, not going to make it this year. I've I've been a few years before, but I won't make it this year, unfortunately. So you'll have to rep literary treks for us. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) But also joining us uh, for the news, which is a little bit of a break with tradition, is our guest today, and that is the wonderful friend of the podcast, been on many times, we're always happy to have him, Star Trek author Dayton Ward. Dayton, how goes it? How are you guys doing? We are doing. We're going. We're going. We'll call it good. We're going. (laughs) Perfect. Well, first of all, uh, belatedly, happy birthday. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Should we sing? Dan, no. should we sing? No, 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 no Matt, Matt's not here. Let's not. <laughs> It'll be a really short interview. <laughs> Happy birthday. We're not going to subject you. Dayton or our audience to that. <laughs> awesome. Well, the reason we have Dayton on for the news is we have some news items today. And interestingly enough, all of them involve Dayton Ward, which is really cool. The more Dayton we get, the better it is. So first of all, the Klingon travel guide we have coming up. So you may remember last year we had the Vulcan travel guide from Dayton Ward. Really wonderful book. A lot of fun to read. And this year we get the Klingon travel guide to Kronos and the entire Klingon empire. So Dayton, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that book entails and what our readers might or our listeners might expect when they pick that up? Well, for those who don't know about the Vulcan guide or haven't yet had a chance to to review it or buy it or read it and if you haven't I I don't know why. I'd like to know why you haven't done it yet. You've had a year. It's basically a travel guide in the in the in the spirit of the types of guides you'd buy from your book, local bookstore if you were, you know, going on vacation overseas or somewhere you'd get one from either the Frommers group or Lonely Planet. It's it's that conceit that it's written by a group of travel writers. And they provide, you know, a, a lengthy rundown of all the really happening places on the 
in this case, the Klingon homeworld and other worlds within the Klingon Empire. So where to eat, where to stay, what are points of interest, history, a little bit of lore here and there, how to get around, that kind of thing. And you, the idea is that you'd carry it in your backpack or your pocket or whatever when you're traveling. So definitely not a novel, definitely not a role-playing game supplement. There's a lot of – it's definitely – very casual, very conversational, maybe even a little irreverent in places uh, just because that's what happens when you have me write something like this. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. I mean, I mean, I, 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 I tried to draw on many sources. I drew on Canon screen sources, of course, uh, but I also added in some things from the novels and some role-playing game uh, supplements that hardcore fans will get. Uh, I tried to roll deep a few times, but uh, the, the, but not so far that the casual fan would feel lost. So if you're a hardcore fan, you might get the reference. If you're not, no big deal. Hopefully it's still entertaining. And then I had to make up a bunch of crap too. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would think compared to the Vulcan guide, the Klingon guide would actually be a little more fun because Vulcans are so serious. Well, I mean, that was the thing when we talked about the Vulcan guide last year. It's like, you know, we're trying to make this a... a, a an appealing vacation destination or a tourist destination. And how do you do that when everybody at the planet that you're heading to is logical and stodgy and buttoned down and conservative and basically boring, right? <laughs> uh, so how do you make that fun? So the idea was that, you know, at this point in time, Vulcan's been a member of the Federation for, you know, 200 years almost or more. And so there's a, there's a cosmopolitan flavor to some of the larger cities, like the capital city, Shikar, and a couple of the other places. It's, you know, people have emigrated there from other worlds. So there's a, there's a fusion going on like you would find in New York or Paris or Tokyo or one of these large metropolitan areas. And then, of course, there's the outlying areas that are still more traditional and conservative and very Vulcan. So the, the fun was, was to try to walk that line without descending into parody and not – when you do make a joke, you're laughing with, you're not laughing at – Star Trek or Star Trek fans or anything like that. So that was the that was the balancing act. That was the challenge. And I had a lot of fun with both books. Definitely different from writing a novel. Well, the tone you struck with the Vulcan Guide, I thought was really excellent. I, I really enjoyed it. I actually read it on the plane returning from shore leave last year. Oh, wow. And- Great. That's right. You were the one who brought me the first copy that I'd seen. I hadn't even seen a print copy of it when you brought it up to me at that point. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, it might be I the actually- same way this year, too. i actually did wonder if uh you know other passengers on the plane were kind of looking wondering like where the heck is he coming from (laughs) right exactly it's like well anybody can go to japan but um no it's um with the klingon guide it's you know it's it's very much meant as a companion to the vulcan guide it's both you know the idea is it's written by the same group of travel writers or the same company so to speak um so there's that tone I try to strike that same tone throughout this book too. But, you know, Vulcans and Klingons are two totally different uh, species. So you have to do things a little differently with the Klingon book. Uh, but hopefully, you know, hopefully the fans will, will dig it the way they did the Vulcan book because I've gotten a lot of feedback about the Vulcan book and most of it is overwhelmingly positive. So I had a lot of fun with it. I'm hoping to uh, repeat that with the Klingon book. Well, with the Vulcan, Vulcan book, you have representation, like you mentioned, from different planets that uh, are now on Vulcan and have some establishments or museums or something to that effect. But on Kronos with the Klingons, even though they're friendly with the Federation here in the 24th century, I would think we'd see less of other planets represented. Yeah, there's less of that. There's less of that in the Klingon book. Um, it's much more. But, you know, the Klingons, 
they they party a little harder than Vulcans do. So there's gonna be there's gonna be places like that that are gonna be intriguing to tourists and outworlders without having to without having to introduce some sort of off-world flavor to it. I mean, yes, they have they have the conceit is of course that they've accepted the idea that there will be people coming to visit their world and 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 embrace their culture or at least get introduced to their culture. So, but they're holding they're gonna hold firm to their 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 cultural norms. I mean, they're not they're not gonna they're not going to change everything just because a bunch of tourists are in town. So you can still get in a fight to the death if you say the wrong thing in the wrong bar to the wrong Klingon if he's had too many drinks. <laughs> <laughs> and that's covered in the book. That is actually – that'll be covered in the oh. book. What to do if you piss off a Klingon. That's good to know. I was going to ask if you could give us a little hint of something. So there's something. And with bars and everything, I'm assuming since Quarks is now a chain, we may see Quarks on Kronos? Entirely possible. <laughs> it's entirely possible. I did. I did have one or two repeat gags that I carried over from the Vulcan guide, but I was. I was only. I was very limited in what I could get away with. So, um, I didn't want to overplay too many of the gags. So, excellent. Well, when the Vulcan guide came out last year, uh, it was only available in, I guess, some people call it dead tree format, like pa- trade paperback. Uh, but this one, the Klingon Guide, coming out on July 11th, will be in ebook ebook format and trade paperback. And also, I hear that the Vulcan Guide will also be released in ebook format then as well. I was surprised to hear about the ebooks. Um, I'm happy. I mean, I'm, I'm I know there's a segment of, of fandom who prefers digital, um, so I'm happy that they'll get a chance to so to to try it this way. I mean, now you're out of excuses. You have to try the book now. Uh, and I'm happy that they've decided to go ahead and, and introduce the Vulcan guide that way too. So it's, uh, there, I don't know if there's going to be any kind of two for promotion or, you know, I, I have no idea. Uh, in fact, it's a good question. I will take that back to the publisher and ask if they are going to do something like that. Uh, but I found out about it the way most people did by reading it online. I was like, Oh, that's okay. It's finally like finding out you get fired, you know, over Twitter or something. So, uh, no, I mean, it's, I'm, like I said, I know there's a group of people that, that prefer ebooks to, to traditional print. So I'm happy that they'll, they'll now be able to get these books if they so desire in uh, ebook format. Well, yeah, I mean, more choice is obviously better for sure. And I mean, more people will have an opportunity to read this as a fan of the book. I do have to say, I mean, personal preference, if you can get this in hardcover in trade paperback, physical format, I mean, it is just beautiful. I'm sure it looks great ebook, but you know, having it in your hands and, and seeing it in that travel book format is is just wonderful. But, yeah, but having people see you holding it in public, that's what's interesting. Their reactions. <laughs> that's what exactly, I think is great about yeah. the physical book. I'll be I don't know how the I'm assuming that the ebook format is strictly just gonna be the the document or you know, the, the, the book as it's presented in the trade, but just in electronic format. It's not gonna be formatted any differently. The layout won't change. Um, so for me, I think I would prefer the print version of the book as well, because that's how it was laid out. It was laid out with that sensibility. Uh, it's not like comics, you know, where they've, they've taken to formatting comics for digital presentation and it's different than it would be if you bought it in an old floppy or a trade paperback. So I'm, I don't know how it's going to look. I'm sure it'll be fine. And I, and I love the artwork, so uh, I, I hope the artwork is, you know, pops off the Kindle or your or your tablet or whatever your electronic device du jour. I hope it pops off the same way it pops off the pages of the book because I just think the artwork is gorgeous. Yeah, so it's July 11th that these are coming out. Both ebook formats will be available. 
So uh, just in time, a month before Star Trek Las Vegas. So I'm hoping to see a Vulcan and a Klingon sitting next to each other, reading <laughs> each other's books. <laughs> you know what? If, if you find somebody doing that or if you're able to engineer that photo op, you know, please do that. That'll be an awesome, awesome picture that I'm sure Insight would love to see. And I would I'll post that everywhere. Uh, yeah, if you can find a Klingon in costume reading the book or a Vulcan in costume reading their book, absolutely make that photo happen. We'll try to make it happen. Please for Dayton for my birthday. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Is this when we sing happy birthday now? Bruce, oh, we're yeah. still not. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, the final bit of Dayton Ward related news today is something that I personally am really excited about. I've I've never played Dungeons and Dragons. I've never been into tabletop RPGs, but this might just be the thing that gets me into it. It looks We're in the same boat. Cool. We're in the same boat on this. I haven't either. So, you know, Dayton, Dan and I are struggling here because we've never done this stuff before and we're really thinking about doing it. It's just a matter of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we're talking about, of course, is the Star Trek Adventures tabletop RPG that Pre-orders just went uh, on on sale this past week for the first time, giving us our first look at kind of what's on offer and what the prices are and that sort of thing. And this stuff looks beautiful. And Dayton, oh man, it's so gorgeous. I mean, I, I find myself visiting that page every day and my finger hovering over the pre-order button. I haven't committed yet, but it's it, one of these days it's going to happen. And this is connected to you personally, Dayton, because I know Star Trek as Star Trek writers, you, Scott Pearson, and I think Jim Johnson uh, all contributed uh, writing to the Star Trek adventures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I need to, you know, just to be clear, my contribution to the game is is relatively small compared to the efforts of other people that are involved in the game. I mean, I had nothing to do with the game mechanics. I had nothing to do with the rules. Um, my job that the job that I was asked to do was I developed a storyline and I helped and Scott Pearson and I worked on it together, um, develop a storyline that would drive what they call the living test campaign or the, or, or living campaign, which is like their beta test if it was software. Um, and that's what people have been playing to for the last few months. They've, they've got this setting that we devised and some of the other writers have contributed scenarios that, that, that lock into that setting and people have been playing these scenarios through to test the rules so that they can be tweaked and, and offer feedback about the game rules and the game mechanics and stuff. So my part was that, and my understanding is that that storyline and some of the scenarios that were uh, created for it will be included in the game's core rule book which was part of this pre-order that went live yesterday. And, and I also I also provided some sidebar material that that will add flavor to the core rule book in different sections. I have yet to see <laughs> what it looks like or what my stuff takes what form my stuff's going to take. Um, but it's been an interesting experience uh, working with all these folks. I mean, these are some talented people and they've got some hardcore RPG designers and writers with a lot of experience working on the game. So, I just kind of sit back and do what I'm told and try to learn <laughs> where I can and not break anything. Have you ever played RPG games? I yourself? have, but it's a long time coming. When I was when I was a teen and in my early twenties back in the nineteen eighties, um, I played FASA's Star Trek role playing game. 
And then I also played a little bit of the last Unicorns edition of the game, which was, uh, what, in the 90s? And I've never played the Cypher version of the game, but uh, I do have a few of the, I have the core rule books for those games as well. Um, I have the core, I have the core rule books and varying numbers of supplements for the other three iterations of the RPG. So um, it was fun to be able to contribute to this. It's, I guess, you know, we're, we're overdue for a cool Star Trek tabletop game. And the okay. stuff that the, the stuff Modifius is putting out is just amazing. Like their little, the little miniatures they have, uh, I've only seen the prototype versions of Kirk and Picard and the ones that are offered now with the pictures I've seen, the detail is just so much more intricate. I don't, I don't know how they do it. Uh, so I can't wait to hold one in my hand and see how it works. And the dice that they've uh, put out, the dice sets they've put out. Uh, I mean, I'm going to go broke just trying to get stuff for this game and I don't even know if I'll even be able to play it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I might get it just to, you know, look through everything and display it. I don't even know if I'll ever play it. I just want to have it. <laughs> <laughs> the rallying cry of Trekkies everywhere. I just want to have it. I got the, I guess they've got this big gigantic deluxe set that looks like a board cube that basically has one of everything in it. Oh yeah. And I'm like, well, there's a car payment. And uh, so <laughs> maybe yeah. I'll just eat ramen noodles for two months and buy the game instead. I don't, I don't know. We'll have to to see if I can sneak that in under the wire with my wife looking the other way or something. Yeah, I, I looked at it the other day and just kind of looked sideways at my girlfriend and she just looked at me and nothing was said and I closed the window. <laughs> my wife was like, I can't believe I didn't marry the high school quarterback. I married this hamster instead. So, <laughs> With all the news uh, out of the way there, I guess all that's left is to head to the feature and we're talking today about hearts and minds your new novel so join us oh my on gosh. the other what a coincidence that the guy that we have on for the news is also the guy that wrote the book for a feature that's just amazing dan isn't it amazing it just worked out so perfectly as long as you're a fan of dayton otherwise this is a miserable podcast for you right now <laughs> so i apologize to those people well, today we're talking about the newest Star Trek The Next Generation novel, Hearts and Minds, by Dayton Ward. And joining us to talk about it, of course, is the author, Dayton Ward. So let's get right into this. Hearts and Minds, not only is it a Next Generation novel, but it's also a sequel to two previous TOS novels written by Dayton Ward, um, From History's Shadow and Elusive Salvation. So, Dayton, first off, what kind of led you to write this third book in that sort of loose trilogy? Uh, I was under contract for two Next Generation novels, and I needed to come up with something fast. <laughs> oh, that's a boring answer. <laughs> I, well, but it, but it has the virtue of being true. Uh, no, I mean, it, in reality, I was under contract for two different Next Generation novels. Headlong Flight was the first in that uh, of those two. And um, I didn't set out to write a sequel to history shadow and, and, and salvation with the next gen crew. Um, I thought I might revisit, you know, the, 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 what I'd set up in those two books somehow. But, um, as I was starting to put together an idea for the next generation novel, uh, I realized I could connect some dots back to those two books if I twisted things a different way. Uh, and then, things just started to fall into place and I realized, okay, this is, this is actually a great way to follow up the two books without repeating the formula. Uh, the first two books of course were with Kirk and Kirk's crew. 
even though I tried to change the formula between those two books, I didn't want to do a time travel book again uh, for a third go at this. So I, using Picard and the Enterprise while they're doing their their exploration well away from Federation space was a nice way to change that up. Well, so this book really is not just a sequel, as you were mentioning, to Elusive Salvation, but also to Headlong Flight, which just came out what, like three months ago? It wasn't even that long. came out in uh, January. Okay, so a little longer than that. So I thought it was interesting that you're kind of combining two series kind of leading into this one. And uh, it starts off with Turek and the events that uh, came out of Headlong Flight, the fact that he had seen a future from dealing with the uh, vessel that he was uh, – working with he saw future events from that book and had to report it to the DTI the Department of Temporal Investigations so now he's in a situation where Admiral Akar is working with him to use him as a provisional liaison to the DTI and to the Admiral himself which really pisses Picard off so could you tell us a little bit more about uh, Turek's character and the situation he's in and what Picard has to face and why why would Admiral Akar use uh, Turek in this situation? Well, it goes back to Armageddon's Arrow, uh, which was the book where Picard and the gang found a temporal weapon ship that another alien race had built. And it came from the future, and it, and it came back to a point in the past, and then the Enterprise found it many years later adrift, right? And then as they're accessing the ship's computer data, Tarek sees something uh, that deals with future history, at least from the point of view of, of the Enterprise crew. And he immediately isolates and quarantines that information and makes a full report back to Starfleet Command. And, of course, the, the Department of Temporal Investigations gets involved because we're talking about time travel and the potential contamination of the timeline and all that stuff that they get excited about. Um, you know, they build entire files around Kirk's temporal shenanigans. They have entire divisions of their department that are nothing but dealing with Kirk's headaches. Um so uh, the idea that was that Tarek had all this information. So uh, during one of the incidents where the Enterprise had to go back to Federation space, you know, for dealing, for example, with um, the events of the Prey trilogy, you know, uh, so they're back at Earth. And the, so what this basically I, I, I go with the idea that this all happened off camera, so to speak, is that he was debriefed. DTI decided that based on the information that Tarek has. Uh, he's in a position to anticipate future events that have not been revealed yet to the to the to the Enterprise crew. Um, so he is now working sort of. I hate to say he's an informant. That's really kind of the wrong way to go. But he is making reports back to Admiral Akaar and DTI regarding anything. Assuming he comes across something that might have an impact or might be related to that information that he possesses. Um, and of course, it's all very vague right now because we're still working our way toward what that might be at some point in the future, in a future novel. So do you know what that is or is that something that you just are going to come up with when you get there? I have like four different ideas <laughs> <laughs> and I've discarded a couple. I've come up with a couple more and then decided they weren't really good ideas. I've I've scrapped one and then pulled it back in and think, well, maybe that could work. And I hide it. So I have got like four or five different ideas. And I, I honestly don't know which one I'm going to go with right now. Uh, I have my favorite. Um, but I don't know if it's the best one from a storytelling standpoint. You know what I mean? 
it's like once I, start, once I start to pull on that thread, I'll figure out if this is the right way to go. But, um, and of course, everybody's everybody's asking me is well, what if, is this one of those the the thing that blows up Romulus and sends Spock back to the other timeline and and all other stuff? And I'm like, I suppose that could be one of them, but that wasn't the idea. Uh, but sure, if they let me do that, you know, I might I might take that. But I don't suspect that's ever going to be one of the options, other than just as you know, maybe somebody gets to write it from a fanfic perspective or something. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, when I when I when I when I came up with the idea and, and played it out in Armageddon Zero, I had an idea about how to take it to the next step. And then with other stories that have been told and other things that have been going on, and I just come up with a better idea every once in a while, I've, I've started to build this file with four or five different options that I could take. And I'm, I'm also thinking, well, maybe, maybe that idea won't work as the solution to this, but I could spin that off into a whole other story and do something else with it. So it just depends. Or, I mean, right now I'm not under contract to, to do another next-gen novel. Uh, that could change. So for the moment, I'm just sort of biding my time and waiting to see what Pocket wants me to do. Well, it better change because we want more stories from you <laughs> and we want to know the answer to that. <laughs> you know, just uh, that was, uh, I'm not, like I said, I'm not at present contracted to write a next generation novel. We shall see what happens. Awesome. Well, that's exciting. I, I like the idea that, you know, there there are some concrete ideas out there that, uh, you know, are, are kind of building. And well, I mean, and to be fair, I'm trying to keep it sort of open-ended because it's entirely possible that another writer could be tapped to do a next generation novel and want to either want to play in this or take it in a different direction than I've, maybe they come up with an idea that's better than anything I've come up with. So I'm trying to be a team player here and not <laughs> tie anybody's hands at this point. This never works out. Whenever I try to do this, it always backfires on me. So, but I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> Because I, I usually end up tying my own hands because <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'll do it this way because another writer is going to write the next generation book. And then they call me up and go, write the next next generation book. I'm like, well, if I had known that, I would have set it up differently. So, <laughs> Well, you know what's going to happen. They're going to have John Jackson Miller do the next generation book and then Maybe put the crew be. on the other side of the universe and you have to get them back again. It's entirely possible. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, it, it, there was a time when that was very true. It could happen um, for whatever reason. Pocket is okay with me doing next gen, at least the last few of them. And I'm, I'm happy to do them. They're fun. Uh, but I'm, you know, it's certain timing and circumstances just might set it up one day that another writer gets tapped to do that. Cause I'm busy with something else. So we will, that's why, that's why I'm trying to be a good team player here and not, uh, not mess up anybody too much. Yeah. And I was saying that because of prey kind of snuck in the middle and you kind of had to work around that when, when John, yeah, uh, did those three books. <laughs> there, uh, that one. They've done that to me a couple of times, where they've like, oh, and by the way, so and so is doing a novel, and they're taking the Enterprise crew, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> so awesome. Well, one aspect of that whole story with Torek that I really enjoyed, and kind of at the beginning of this book, kind of throws me threw me for a little bit of a loop, and in a really good way was uh, how Picard reacts to what has happened and, and how Aka'ar has kind of divided Torek's loyalties here. That kind of reaction that we got out of Picard isn't something that... I, I feel like a lot of times the novels kind of play it safe with the characters and, and keep them kind of on the straight and narrow as we expect them. And I love that this one kind of threw me for a bit of a loop as far as Picard's actions. What was that like to kind of write 
the one scene that I love when Picard just kind of lets Akaar have it over the comm link. And I was just, wow, that's amazing. I actually talked about this with my editor, uh, Margaret Clark. She's the one who helped me decide how to handle Torek being, I, I hate to use the words like agent or informant or snitch or mole or whatever you want to call it. Cause that's really not how I see him, but that's how he's coming off to Picard, at least in the beginning. Right. Um, so we talked about that. And I said, you know, it's really not Tarek's fault because he's following orders. So Picard would not necessarily hold it against Tarek for just doing what he's told. He would hold it against Akaar. Um, and of course, he's at that point in his career where, you know, he has. He, he, <laughs> it's funny because how the book ends, right? I'm setting him up for a fall here. Um, he, You figure he's earned a measure of trust at this point in his career however we as we know if you've read toward the end of the book you know that that comes back to blow up in his face um so he's a little irritated at the at the obvious lack of trust uh in his ability to uh let Torek perform his duties uh and maintain the secrecy that he has now charged with uh he's definitely irritated by that and that's I'd always wanted to write a scene where he unloads on somebody like that I did it in one of the other novels where um he unloads on some other admiral, who, but not to this degree. I mean, you know, he he can be he can be kind of sharp when he's pushed, but he generally observes protocol and 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 respect for the higher rank. But I've always wanted to write a scene where he just grills somebody of a higher rank and just you know basically throw, throws it at him. Yeah, and, well, uh, he's like it's like he's a badass. It's like he he's so accomplished. And he's been a captain for whatever forty five years or whatever it is, and it's like no one can touch me now. You know, I. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, he's still very respectful of the traditions, and he's respectful of the rank and the position that Akahar holds. But at the same time, he's like, you know, what else do I have to do to prove to you, pricks, that I'm that I'm a good guy? And of course, these are questions that will come into play later in the book, uh, which we can. <laughs> I can explain why the ending is the way it is when we get there. But uh, yeah, so that was when I wrote that scene, I was going a certain way with the book. And then as the book was being, as I was writing the book, other factors came into play that required me to take things in a different direction as we wrapped the book up. That was something that I found really funny, actually, was because, you know, the readers having read uh, David Mack's book, Control, before this, kind of there's a bit of... Uh, Oh, what's the term? Um, the irony where the the reader knows something that the characters don't, you know, and I'm kind of like one to scream at the book. No, John Luke, don't make waves. <laughs> You've got something bad coming. <laughs> and that was, like I said, that was an unintended. Um, I didn't set out to do that. I just ended up being able to do that by virtue of the, the sequence of events and how they played out as far as developing this book. And Dave was writing control. Um, I was about halfway to almost three quarters of the way done with the manuscript on Hearts and Minds when I found out about the bomb Dave was going to drop in control. Uh, and I'm like, <laughs> well, then <laughs> that certainly changes things. Um, so I got on the phone to Margaret and we talked it out. I'm like, how am I supposed to handle this? Because it, in, in reality, what Dave gives us with control requires a lot more, you know, than just, uh, it, it needs its own book as far as fallout for Picard, at least, at least one. Right. And I was so far along in the development of mine. I'm like, I don't, I'd have to scrap what I'm doing and start from scratch because the story I have doesn't work if I'm having to deal with these other issues. And so Mark, it was Margaret's idea to set hearts and minds almost in parallel with the events of control. And then 
let me do what I did at the end of, of, of Hearts and Minds to, to give the readers Picard getting slapped around by Agar. Um, without spo- I, now, we, were, we were able to do that without spoiling either of the two books, right? Just now, that happened? Well, <laughs> that, wasn't, I mean, that wasn't just in my own head? Okay. Um, <laughs> we, we will get into spoilers. Yeah, we are, but we, we didn't give any warnings, so that's why I was kind of tap dancing there. Um, Fair enough, yeah. So, yeah, that was uh, it was when I heard about it, I'm like, okay, that's awesome, but what the heck am I supposed to do with this now? <laughs> why do I always keep getting lumped, dropped in my lap? I keep being these, you know, somebody pulls a pin on a grenade and drops it in my, in my lap and then runs off. So... Uh, <laughs> But I, because I was as blown away as most people were when they read Control, I'm like, oh wow, that's definitely gonna leave a mark. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's get it a little bit into the story of this novel. So the Enterprise is continuing its exploration of the Odyssean Pass, and they encounter this planet, and it kind of triggers this data dump, I guess, in the Enterprise's computers and alerts Starfleet and all of this stuff that we talked about with Torek and Admiral Akahar comes to pass. So we have this planet and they, long story short, and we're going to get into spoilers here. So guys, if you haven't read the book, you should go read it. And if you haven't, be warned, we are going to be spoiling the crap out of this. There be spoilers ahead. Exactly. Here there be spoilers. Um, so this planet's history, they see Earth as a force for evil, basically, so we've we've got two stories running in parallel, one in the 21st century and then our heroes here in the 24th century. And we learn bit by bit kind of what happened in the past with this Izand ship, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, that crashed on Earth and then the humans kind of used the technology to build or to take that ship back to their home planet and the plan is to nuke the planet. And that's kind of what the history of this planet's recorded. But by the end of the novel, we find out that that's not exactly the case. Now, you know, the the famous quote, history is written by the victors. You know, that's a very common theme throughout our own history, for sure. And I was wondering if there was any kind of specific inspiration for this story's depiction of the Aizan's false history and also, you know, the crimes perpetrated by the government that, that you know, wrote this history back in the day. Well, I mean, you've got two different versions of, of the events. You've got the, the, the Izan's version of what they think happened. Because remember, we're, we're still talking, what, a couple hundred years removed. And then you've got um, what happened from the Earth perspective, what they're dealing with. And, you know, their their actions were motivated by fear and paranoia and uncertainty and having dealt with, you know, with, we're talking about the group of people who've been investigating extraterrestrial activity for several decades at this point, you know, either, 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 uh, if not the organization, then some descendant of that organization because for the stuff I set up in history, shadow and elusive salvation. So they find out that these group, this alien is, they're looking for a new planet. They're looking for a place to, to resettle. Earth looks like a pretty promising candidate. And of course they're freaked out because um, they're worried that they're going to get pushed off the rock, so to speak. So they react this way not. And I shouldn't say earth reacts this way. This group of people, reacts this way they put this plan into motion and then they send the ship back to to the izan homeworld and uh with the nukes loaded and it's it's really sort of a 
I don't really I – I guess it's sort of inspired by the fact that we all seem to be scared of everything today. <laughs> We're all scared of the unknown. We're scared of the things that are different. We're scared of the things that don't look like us or feel like us or act like us. Uh, I suppose there's some inspiration there in current events. Um, and as far as the history being written by the victors, you know, there are countless examples of how we have written history or studied history in school. And then we come to find out it's not exactly that, that that's not exactly the way it went down. Um, so I don't know that I can point to any one specific example. It's just, it's just a general theme of, of, you know, uh, alternate history, alt facts. I don't want to delve too much into current events, but um so that was where i was gunning for um and you know I, and i was trying to think long term it's like what would a group who will eventually over time plant seeds that will be picked up by other people decades to, from now and become what we now know as section 31 what kind of thinking what what's driving them you know they're giving a simple the group that was formed in the 40s had a very simple mandate investigate activity from aliens devise a defense. And that mission continued through the 20th century and into the early 21st century. And then, of course, we have all our other problems on Earth. You know, we're, we're going through the eugenics wars. We go through the, the, the sanctuary districts. We go through eventually the Third World War. And, you know, so we're probably pretty afraid of everything at this point. Uh, that's where all that's coming from. Um, and then, of course, there's, there's this one group who's trying to hold it all together, at least in their minds. You know, they're, they're, they, they think they have, they're operating under noble intentions. Uh, but of course they're misguided and that's going to be a theme that we revisit as time marches on and we get to groups like section 31 and uh, first contact and everything else and all that will bubble together. So when you were writing from history shadow and starting from that era of the 1940s and going up through Gary seven and, and these different organizations are trying to, to save humanity and, and Gary seven is working to try to help, earth through its different conflicts was in your mind were you thinking th these are the seeds that are going to lead to section 31 not with history shadow um specifically um at least i didn't i didn't have a i didn't have an intention of drawing a straight line between project blue book or project sign which is uh the name of the project as it started in the 40s i did not have an idea of drawing a direct line between project sign project grudge project blue book all the way through the 20th century and, and then finally whatever becomes section 31. um my, there's just we and we talk i think i talked about this with some folks on the trek bbs and 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 christopher you know helped bring that into uh understanding it's like conspiracies and secret organizations and stuff they just don't they can't last that long without somebody figuring out what they're about who they are what they're doing um uh so but the idea is that somebody's going to pick up that that baton so to speak they're going to pick up that mantle they're going to they're going to they're going to continue that mission in some way and we know that we know that section 31 that's their mission protect the federation but what what did it grow out of because they existed before there was a federation. So we know that from enterprise that they were already active in doing things behind the scenes, even before there was a federation. So where did they come from? And then you take another step back. And so, yes, there are seeds that could be carried forward between the, the, the Roswell landing and what becomes section 31, but it's not the same group of people or the same straight line from point A to point B. There's a lot of blanks still to be filled in. I mean, I still got a hundred years or so to play with, just from where I left off this previous book before I could start to figure out 
where section 31 comes from. And I didn't set out to be the guy who creates section 31. Uh, and that was before I even found out what Dave was doing. Um, so I'm just sort of playing and watching where the, watching where the balls drop and figuring out where I can bounce them next. <laughs> I kind of love that idea. It's, it's almost chilling to think that it, you know, like you said, it's not linear. There's not a, a, a straight line connection, but the idea that it started out with, you know, one guy and an assistant in a office somewhere. And then to see like, you know, ah, shoot, I know his alias is Donovan. I can't remember his actual name. But I mean, but... you know, it's the, they started off in the forties because of the Roswell landing, which we of course knew were the Ferengi. And then, um, because of, and, and Star Trek on screen has documented that we have been visited by aliens prior to official first contact. So somebody's taken notice. Some we know that somebody was taking notice of what was going on, and they're thinking, "What if these people aren't friends? What if these people are our enemies instead?" So what do we do in that event? And that's where Project I allege that Majestic Twelve, of course, you know, Project Blue Book was the public face of the military's efforts. And this is the, for real. They were the military's efforts to investigate, in quotes, investigate. They were really trying to debunk everything, dealing with alien stuff. If you're And if you're a UFO conspiracy theorist, you get what Majestic 12 was trying to do. They were hoping to exploit alien technology and defend against aliens, and we have been fighting a war on Mars and all that other stuff, all that crazy stuff. Um, so, you know, okay, eventually that group dies out or gets shuttered or gets defunded or gets exposed and has to go into hiding and or whatever. Somebody eventually is going to pick up that mission and continue on because it's still, a, in their minds, a viable threat. So what what morphs from Majestic 12 in the 20th century to Section 31? That's a, to me, that's a fun little space to play in. Have no idea how I will connect those dots if I ever connect those dots. <laughs> Or maybe somebody will beat me to it. I don't know. I kind of wonder with <laughs> just kind of an idle thought, all the research you've done into these organizations and that sort of thing. Uh, I'm sure I'm on a watch list somewhere. That's kind of where I was going. <laughs> just from my Google searches alone, I'm sure I'm on a watch list from somewhere. And and not even just like watch lists, but like I imagine, you know, and and I apologize for using this term, but like the kooks must, you know, you must have taken notice of some of them too. <laughs> I, I don't remember if we talked about this when when we talked about history shadow, um, but I read a lot. I, I am not a I am not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm entertained by conspiracy theories. If that makes any sense, I derive endless amusement from reading what some of these people come up with, and and wondering what they're smoking and who their dealer is and how can I get some and all of that. Um, when I was doing History Shadow and it was set in the 50s, I read books written in the 50s by people who thought all this was real or at least were alleging that all this was real. So I read books about the UFO cover-up and Majestic 12 and Project Blue Book. And, you know, it's funny because only by doing that did I discover that the Roswell landing was only something that came about much later in terms of people talking about it. it there, nobody actually connected that as a UFO thing, the way it's, its place in UFO lore seems to be a re, relatively recent development. Like when I say recent, I mean like in the last 30, 40 years. It, it does not date back to the 50s. All the books I have, I, I think I looked at five different books that I read cover to cover dealing with UFO phenomenon and sightings and are they real and watch the skies and all that. And Roswell is never mentioned once in any of those books. 
Only in books written later does Roswell come into play, um, which I thought was interesting. I'm like, okay, so it's kind of like trying to track, you know, the origins of the moon hoax. The moon is the moon landing a fake or not? Uh, I'm endlessly fascinated by this stuff. I'm not a believer in conspiracy theories, but um, there are times when you read something, you go, "That's just crazy enough to be true." <laughs> But you know, some of the stuff that was written in the 50s are written by the people that we would look to and go, that's the Alex Jones of the 1950s, or that's the Glenn Beck of the 1950s, or the guy, uh, what's his name, Art Bell. Uh, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with him, but he does a, an overnight talk show, or at least he used to, that was all about conspiracy theories and UFOs and, and the paranormal and stuff. I don't know if he's still doing it or not, but he was big in the 90s and the early 2000s. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I know when I was younger... You know, driving home at 3 a.m. or whatever, I could tune the AM radio and get some American stations. And I loved listening to Art Bell. Art <laughs> Bell, okay. So you know, yeah, like Coast to Coast with Art Bell or something like that. Yeah, uh, Coast to Coast AM. Yeah, there you go. And I mean, I, I listened to it too. Uh, but so I knew who he was. Uh, but what I was, I was just fascinated by the fact that people talking about this, you know, back in the 50s um, were, were of similar mindset. You know, they were trying to get their message across that way. And you're like, this is if, if this if this was the 20, you know, if, if this guy had been alive, he'd have a blog and a website and, you know, he'd be on YouTube and and all this stuff spouting this stuff. So, um, yeah, so I did way more research for History Shadow and Elusive Salvation um, than I usually do for a Star Trek novel, just by the virtue of the subject matter. Well, that's the one thing that we like about your novels, because there's all these little references, not just to that, but also to pulp culture and, and to other aspects of Star Trek from other novels and sources. So what kind of research goes into that for you? And, and is it kind of a, as it comes up basis or is there an active seeking of data points to include? Well, for these three books, because I was dealing with points of history, both real and Star Trek history, you know, I had a list of, of touch points, you know, on the calendar uh, for the first book, for, for real, I had a lot of touch points as far as UFO sightings and developments in the space program and, and other things like that because I wanted to be able to weave in and out between those events and blend them with the Star Trek events that took place on Earth in the 20th century, or at least the ones we know about. Um, same thing with the, with the following two books. Uh, less real history you know, with this latest one because I've moved into the 21st century and I'm a couple of decades in the future. But I still had, you know, a list of things that happened in Star Trek lore in the 21st century and whether or not I could use them uh, or refer to them or, or, or somehow. So like the big examples are uh, the Mars mission from the Voyager episode, One Small Step, uh, you know, where he gets the, the guy in the command module gets taken away and, and he shows up later in the future or he shows up in a Voyager episode. Um, Things like that. And of course, first contact, I was thinking how much I wanted to lean into first contact, um, decided to kind of not get too deep into that one. I wanted to leave that one alone. Uh, and the sanctuary districts, and there was a couple of other touch points. Oh, I mean, Greg Cox wrote a book called The Rings of Time uh, that came out a couple of years ago that deals with the first Earth Saturn mission. And it's, you know, it's Sean Jeffrey Christopher is the commander of that mission. So of course, I, I try to refer to that. Um, so yeah, it's just it's definitely more research in terms of data and information that I want to be able to weave into the narrative. Um, not all of it is pre-planned. Sometimes I'll be writing and I go, "Oh, wait a minute! If I restructure this scene, I can refer to something else." Like, uh, in fact, the whole idea of 
are we in spoiler territory now? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, the whole idea of Rain Robinson being bitter with, again, or being angry with Gary Seven because her father died on September 11th or in the September 11th attacks. Um, and the reason that he chose to come back and rescue Sean Christopher from boarding one of the airplanes on September 11th that, that ends up being used in the attacks. That comes from a Strange New World short story uh, that Kevin Lauderdale wrote called Assignment One. And the the details of the story don't necessarily line up perfectly with Greg Cox's Eugenics Wars books. Um, but I was able to massage the details just enough, or there was enough wiggle room with what I needed to refer to from that story that I could make use of it. So there was, so there's a Star Trek references too. And it's like, okay, not just the screen stuff, but you know, where, what, what juicy story has Gary seven or Mastraw or something like that, that I can, I can pull in and, and flesh this out and kind of tie things together. That's the fun part. Uh, I love doing that. If I can, if I can get away, I don't want to walk over somebody else's story, even a strange new world story, which are understood to not be part of the lit verse. If I can reference a way, if I can, if I can weave something in instead of run over it, I love to do that. It's just part of the fun for me. I think the one that, that jumped out at me that just really impressed me was you mentioned the Optimum movement. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's from Federation. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of that novel. Uh, I'm a big fan of the op. I guess being a fan of the Optimum movement sounds bad, doesn't it? It's like saying <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Nazi party. Um, no, <laughs> I love that storyline from Federation, the Adric Thorson and the Optimum movement. I always thought that was a cool bit of lore that uh, unfortunately the book itself has been overrun by the screen canon but it's one of my favorite star trek novels so i will if i can find a way to weave in a reference on the sly i definitely will do that the other thing that i noticed which was really interesting and i i'm just wondering your thoughts on this was the date that they arrive at uh the izan's homeworld is i think like a couple of weeks after the Vulcans made first contact on earth, if I'm not mistaken, it was, it was in the month of April still. And on that same year, I thought that was really interesting. Was that, was that just kind of to draw the parallels between the two events? I, I didn't go so far as to make it happen on the same day. I thought that was pushing it <laughs> a little hard, but the idea of it taking place in the same month and year as what is going on on earth with the peaceful first, the whole irony of the whole thing, the, the reason that they're sending this ship in the first place is because they're scared out of their minds that they're going to be invaded and destroyed and everything else. And at, at the same time, these guys make contact with the Izan, the Vulcans are making contact with earth and everything is getting set. The stage is being set for what will become earth's, you know, uh, progress forward in the, in the next hundred years. So yeah, I sort of played with that. I'm like, okay, I'm, I might, I might get some frowns when I, when people read that, but it's worth it for me. Oh no, that was, that was great. It was, it was really chilling actually, like reading that for the first time and not knowing what exactly is going to happen. Like I thought, you know, this program is going to succeed in launching nukes and, you know, earth will, will actually be sort of responsible for this calamity on, you know, at the same time that that's going, I was just, yeah, I, I had chills reading that part. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he just had the air conditioning up on high that's really what he meant <laughs> that's the chills <laughs> so i know and i know we touched on this a little bit earlier but i did want to jump back to uh jean luc's jean luc picard's future in starfleet because of you know where where this happens we're kind of coming to the end of the novel and in this novel, he's described as kind of a Starfleet dar darling. He's kind of been a symbol of the best of Starfleet. 
And now there's this revelation in David Mack's novel that of his involvement in the Tezwa affair. It's kind of been made public and his reputation's been tarnished. And I was kind of wondering, like, what sorts of things do you see on the horizon for Picard? Like, do you have kind of any ideas of how he might deal with this and and how this might affect stories for Picard going forward? Well, I mean, uh, for those people, you know, if you've read Control, you know that Dave dropped a massive nuke, <laughs> right, <laughs> on his way out the door. Um, so it did prompt a couple of conversations. It prompted a conversation with Dave um, because, I, for one, I had to get my memory refreshed about the intricacies of his involvement in the Tesla affair. Not so much the, that, but in in the in the removal of President Zeif. I, I had – it's been so long since that happened. I mean we're talking, what, 13, 14 years since those books were written? Yeah. So I was a little fuzzy. And so I talked to Dave about it and I was like, well, I mean, he was not complicit in the president's murder. That was all Section 31. Picard never knew that until uh, it was revealed that um, that he had been not sent into exile, but instead murdered. Um, And that's probably the only thing that has a chance of saving him. Right. At least in my eyes, uh, is that he was not involved in 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 that part of it however but he he was a willing willing reluctant but yet still willing participant in the president's removal from office and that's a that's a big deal in my eyes um you know you're talking about a coup d'etat basically and that's that runs counter to everything uh that starfleet should be about and yes you can argue that the that the uh the actions were justified but it's like they made that decision. They took the they took the law into their own hands, so to speak. They they made the decision instead of it going through the courts, instead of him having his day in court. Um, so it's it's a disturbing. It was disturbing when it happened. It's disturbing now that it's been brought to light. And Picard's not innocent, but yet he's not as guilty i mean it's 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 a very complicated <laughs> the situation with with him and it's it, we had we had a lengthy discussion about this about what to do with him and you know what's realistic and plus you know we are yes there are certain things that would happen in real life but we also have to balance the fact that it's star trek and he's the star of the show so to speak so we're going to have to find a way to navigate this obstacle course or this minefield that's been laid out for us um there are several discussions underway about what we will do with Picard in, in books to come. Uh, and all of them are sort of like, well, maybe we'll see. And we have to, we haven't run anything by CBS. Um, you know, they were okay with us with Dave dropping the bomb in control. Um, we haven't brought to their attention. They, well, okay. Now what <laughs> we haven't, we haven't had that conversation yet. Uh, I'm excited to see where things go because if, if there's anything that would define uh, rejecting the status quo or not, you know, hitting the reset button short of killing off a major character. It's something like this, uh, a major shakeup in, in, because even if Picard gets away, gets away is probably the wrong way to put that. Even if Picard is allowed to navigate this relatively unscathed, I mean, the damage to his reputation is considerable, at least in the eyes of some people, there are going to be people who think he's a hero. There are going to be people who don't get the big deal about it because the bad guys are dead. But at the same time, it's like this is this this is a guy who's amassed a fifty plus year career as a Starfleet captain, and he participated in a reprehensible act. Um, I'm excited about the idea of where to take that. Um, I don't know how far they'll let us go with that. Is the question? 
Yeah, because you really got to be careful. Like you said, he's one of your lead characters. I mean, you can destroy him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, but I mean, he's the in, in my mind, Picard defines the next generation. He is the face of that uh, iteration of the franchise. So once you take him off the Enterprise, it, it's no longer really you can get away with removing other members of the cast and promoting them or moving them off to other ships. But once Picard comes off the bridge of the Enterprise, it stops being next generation in my eyes. It's kind of like the way that they they sort of had post Star Trek Generations novels with Kirk supposedly dead at the you know, and it's that interim period between the original series and next generation, you know, that lost era. And it's like, but it's not classic Trek anymore. It's not the original series anymore. Um, That's kind of how I feel about it. At the same time, I don't want to hit the reset button. I really want to, it's kind of like when we did it with Vanguard, when Diego Reyes gets court-martialed and everybody thought we were going to get him off. And there was, there was a, there was a time when we were thinking that we would find a way to get him off. And then at some point, Dave and Kevin and I said, why? Why get him off? Let him take the fall. Let him be drummed out. Let him be punished. Um, and let's see what happens after that. And our editors were totally behind us on that one. So, but that's a different set of characters that aren't tied to something on TV or on film. So we had the freedom to do that with those characters. This is a little different. We have to, we kind of have to watch our step when we're dealing with a canon character. Yes, the chances of seeing Patrick Stewart play Picard again are relatively slim, but at the same time, there's still, there's, he's still the face of the franchise. There are still people who want to see traditional next generation stories in the books. You kind of have to watch where you step, you know, cause I don't want to, I don't want to alienate a whole segment of the readership that wants Picard on the bridge of the enterprise forever. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. They'll hate you for that. Yeah. And I don't, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to do that to them, but at the same time, there's, there's just such a rich storytelling a possibility here or you know an opportunity here to be mined uh we gotta at least talk it out and see where it takes us yeah well i mean it could be interesting i mean something really bad could happen to him he could lose the enterprise but then future books he gets it back for some reason or whatever we've we've discussed possibilities on where to take it um i'm I'm not going to spill anything here uh, but it's just, you know, it's, it's definitely been a topic because, you know, it's, I've got a big old question mark in a file. Like what now? What do we do now? Um, well, I don't think you're trying to connect it to the countdown comic, but one of the thoughts I had when I read it was Akinar saying that, you know, captain is the highest rank you will ever attain now. And I thought, well, that doesn't mean he couldn't become an ambassador like we saw in the countdown comic, but I know that you're not tied to linking to that, but that was a thought that I had when I read it. Yeah. It's kind of like back when, um, Cisco told Worf he would never be a captain, you know, because of actions he did in one of the episodes. And I always thought, I, I can't see that happening. Um, I can't see that being, a, you know, a, an absolute. Um, and, and of course, then, then Picard takes the step of making Worf his first officer, you know. So you're the first officer of the flagship of the Federation, um, but you're never going to ever be eligible for your own command. That doesn't, that doesn't compute, you know. Uh, because basically if you're the first officer, then you're a captain in training. So if you're never going to ascend to be a captain in training, you're taking a billet space from somebody who could be learning to take that. You know what I mean? You're dead space at that point. So it's like, but captain's a little different because we're always going to need somebody to captain a starship somewhere. Um, but the whole point of being a first officer is to learn how to be a captain. 
so that you can eventually get your own command. Um, so if you're not going to go, you're taking up space from somebody who could be training under Picard's leadership to one day command a ship of their own. Um, it's sort of like an up or out policy in the military. You know, if you can't get promoted, you're blocking the somebody who can. Um, so get out. Um, so I never subscribed to the idea that Worf could never command his own ship. Will that happen? I don't know if it'll ever happen in the books, um, but it's obviously a possibility. Um, I don't, I don't really know what I would want to do. Up until Dave released Control, I'd have been happy to have Picard as the captain of the Enterprise. Um, now that this wrinkle has been introduced, we have to explore possibilities. You know, what what can we do? Um, so stay tuned. <laughs> well, I definitely appreciate the the weight that that part of the story had, and and I'm really excited that it's kind of being discussed. And you know, I I've, the greatest tragedy, like you say, kind of would be if this just got dropped and not dealt with. So. That, really I, yeah, I, I don't think that's ever, that's not the, uh, I don't think that's anybody's intention is to not follow up. It's, it's mm-hmm. how best to follow up and how to do it right. Um, that's the key. Um, Cause you're only going to get one shot to do this. And uh, it's got, you know, it's, there's a lot at stake here. Um, not just for the characters and the storylines, but you know, again, it's, it's easy to say, remove him from the enterprise. I'm like, okay, but then you've just, in my brain, you've turned off the next generation novel line because mm-hmm. it's not, it's not next generation if Picard's not there. So, but at the same time, that's not a reason to let him out of getting, you know, having some heat laid on him for a while. I kind of left it vague at the end as far as what might happen. I left it with Akar is basically saying, I think I can get you through this, but it's not an absolute. He could get overruled. I mean, you know, the Federation Attorney General could say, haul his ass back here so he can be stride. You know, we haven't, we don't know. Um, that's part of the discussion, you know, or, you know, the, the, the board could attack again and he's the darling, you know, I mean, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's time for one of those galaxy spanning threats to come up and take four books and then, you know, Picard's the star again. Yeah. No, right. Cause he I, saves I, earth. I, yeah. We've haven't had one of those for a couple of years. So maybe it's, <laughs> no, I, we're not doing that. Or, or he gets demoted to commander and he serves as first officer on the USS Robinson under Captain Sisko. <laughs> uh, I don't, I, cool. yeah, I, I don't know. Or Q comes in and resets the timeline and we'll go back to doing stories set during the television series. I did, I did actually throw that out there as an idea kind of half jokingly. Um, but uh, it may have been the vodka talking when I did that. I don't know. I think Cisco and Robinson, Cisco and Picard, both stuck on the Robinson. Certain readers would absolutely lose their minds over. There would probably be pitchforks and torches involved if we did that. Um, No, I don't. I don't. I I don't. I don't. uh, We have not decided on what is the best way to to go with this. And again, there's no. I'm not under contract for a next generation novel, so I haven't given it a lot of thought beyond. Oh boy, this is a great idea. Let's see what happens. Uh, well, stay tuned. Excellent. Well, there's a, uh, there's a Facebook group called the Star Trek books discussion group. And, uh, Bruce actually put it out there to some of the people who are on the, in that group, uh, any questions that they wanted to ask, uh, since we have this opportunity to talk to you. Uh So, (laughs) so we do have a, a few questions from listeners. And, uh, the first one I, I, I love because, this this has been a bit of bone of contention with me sometimes too. Is so K Frick asks, have you heard the audio version? And if so, 
does the mispronunciation of Akaar bother you as much as it does them? I have not listened to the entire um I have not listened to the entire audiobook, but I have listened to a couple of scenes. And one of the scenes I listened to was Picard's confrontation with Akaar. And yeah, it kind of bugged me a little bit. Um but yeah, it's funny. It's it bugs me the same way that Kirk mispronounces Orion in the animated show or <laughs> sabotage, right? You know how they do that. And and, and I and it's happened there've been other Star Trek audios where the reader has mispronounced something and like a like a last name of a character and uh, I could never get over Joe Morton's mispronunciation of Mackenzie Calhoun's uh native name, you know, Mahaka Enzi. I could never get I know that's probably how it's pronounced with the with the apostrophes and everything, but the way he said it and the way he 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 paused in his delivery always bugged me when I heard that one. Um, but yeah, well, was, I haven't heard this the audio of Akar. How is it? How is it pronounced? Just, I think he just he just pronounces it Akar or, or or, and I'm I'm almost certain I have to go back and look. I, um, one of the things that's that's done, and this is something that was new when we started doing the audios, is the the director of the audio book adaptation will send out a pronunciation guide to the writer and ask for clarification or correction or or addition of terms that are uh you know risk being mispronounced so like a lot of the star trek terminology any kind of alien names things like that and i'm absolute i'm almost certain that akar's name is in that guide that we did for this book as a fact in fact while i'm talking i'll look it up uh, it's a great question, by the way, for whoever posed that. It didn't bug me, but it was just like, ooh, okay, people are going to probably take issue with that. Because otherwise, I really dig Robert Petkoff's reading of these books. Because he's done he's done all the most recent iterations of the – everything starting with the Legacies trilogy last summer forward. He's done all of those readings. And I've I've enjoyed his readings. He's, he's a fan. Uh, apparently, he – was very excited when asked to do these uh, and, he, and he enjoyed doing them. So, and you can tell, at least in my ear, I can hear the enthusiasm that he has for the material. Um, I'm just hoping he's not bored out of his brains by reading anything I wrote. But I don't think anybody will will mind that mistake at all. I mean, Star Trek fans are known for being, you know, very forgiving and, and tolerant of anything that kind of deviates from what they view as Star Trek. Well, and it's a big <laughs> right? galaxy, right? Whether tomato, tomato, potato, potato. Come on, it's a big galaxy. We can do it on our own planet. It can happen anywhere in the in the yeah. In the I mean, universe. it just happens. You know, it's a, it's a, maybe we'll just say it's a regional dialect thing. Right there, you go. So, you know, Star Trek fans are pretty. I mean, they're they're very passionate and they're very protective, but they're also very forgiving. And actually, Kay herself uh, says that she tells herself that this is the Federation version of his compel of his Capellan name. So you know that's one possible explanation, I suppose. You know, it's a, it's a, it's like an ang- Anglic Anglic how do you say Anglic Anglic Anglicization Anglicization whatever. Uh, it's just like a watering down of his of his native name. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. We'll go with that. I good like call. That. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, that was, also that was a pretty easy question. It was. Well, now Justin Ozer, he has a question too, but I, we pretty much covered it in the beginning. But now that we've got a more spoiler area, you could probably go deeper into it. But he's saying about, uh, he's asking, was the decision to include the discussion with Akaar at the end about the revelations that came out of Section Thirty One Control something that came toward the end of the writing process, or did you know this was coming for a while? But it sounded like you knew this. Like what? 
halfway through right halfway through yeah. i was halfway through i was well underway uh when it when i discovered what was going on and because i had to talk to margaret about you know do i because you know originally i my the idea was that you know i was assuming that the events of this book would take place after the events of dave's book and um so once i discovered what exactly he was going to do um you know we had it we had to talk it out as far as possible solutions because i'm like well okay it will it will it would hang over everything that takes place in this book uh, if 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 we do that and so and i and i would I was deep into what I was doing. So I'd basically have to start over from scratch and I just didn't have the time for that. Number one, didn't have the time for that. Um, number two, this deserves its own book. You know, the fallout from this deserves its own book. In fact, it might even deserve a couple of books, you know, you know, one from the perspective of DS nine and one from the spec or, you know, at least events that take place in Federation space. And then one from the events of Picard and the enterprise, because they're so far away from what's going on. So, you know, it's it's not something that can be taken care of in one chapter of one book and then dismissed and never heard from again. That's totally a disservice to what Dave did in control. So um, after discussing it with my editor, you know, the idea came about that we set these books in parallel or largely in parallel. And then I dropped the bomb on Picard at the end of my book uh, with the dot, dot, dot to be continued vibe at the end so that we can really give it the attention it deserves in a follow-up book. Yeah, I like that you did that because it... You really don't address Section 31 control until we get to the end of the book. So you can tell your story and then we kind of put that dot, dot, dot at the yeah, end. Yeah, the, the largest the largest factor in all that was just the time. I mean, I was I was I was marching toward a deadline. Um, uh, so and <laughs> it's not like this year's calendar has on already disrupt, been disrupted by various things. Um, but I mean, there just wasn't a, there wasn't time for me to go back, come up with a completely different storyline get it approved, then write it and get it approved and stay on production schedule. Um, so this was the best answer f to deal with all of the various wickets that had to be navigated. All of that kind of leads into the next question. I, I think a lot of readers are very much focused on, on, on this topic, basically. It's Kay Frick again. She asks, I'm going to read her question verbatim because I really like it. It seems like David Mack writes the bombshell stories, Destiny, Control, for example, that all the other writers must then work with. My question for Dayton is, does he want to hug him or choke him? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I don't want to choke him, of course. A choke hug. Um, you know, uh Dave was motivated to write control. Dave, if you, if you've heard, well, I mean, you talked to him last month when you, when you, when you interviewed him for control and he also did an interview for Trek movie where he discusses the motivation, uh, you know, what drove him to write control. Um, and so, you know, that, that's the kind of storyteller Dave is. He, he, you know, he latches onto something and he, and he, and he goes all in and for star Trek, you know, we've had some great stories come out of his particular process. Um, yeah, we we like to call him. You know, he 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 has several nicknames, <laughs> some of which are not not uh, we can't say them on a show that has a PG rating. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, he's the he's the angel of death. He's he's got that rec reputation for killing everything. Well, you know, we I I basically just call him. You know, he's he's like the game record. You know, it's like okay, we've got this board, we've got all the pieces, the game is in play, and then Dave comes in and swipes the board and cleans off all the pieces, and we have to start all over again. 
Um, but it's job security because we spend several books <laughs> over many months, if not longer, creating stories in the aftermath of what he's left behind. You know, uh, so if for for the line, it keeps things fresh. I mean, I don't know why Dave keeps getting uh, do, uh, picked to do that. I mean, he's very good at it. So maybe that's probably that's probably the simplest answer. He's just very good at doing that kind of story that shakes up the game board, so to speak. Um, I don't, I'm not as inclined to do that. I'll be very honest with you. Um, it's, I don't know that I would want to do that, at least not on a regular basis. It's okay to do it with a character or a particular storyline, but I mean, just, just make a sweeping change that's going to impact books for months to come. I mean, I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've got an enemy to do that the way he does. He does it so very well. I don't know that I could measure up to that. Um, I, I like to tell different kinds of stories. I like to end my stories on a little more upbeat note. You know what I mean? Uh, at least generally speaking, uh, uh, I don't know. It's a, uh, he's a tough act to follow. I, I will, I, I, I have no problem admitting that. So if we were playing a, if we were playing a game of Star Trek adventures and he were the GM. Oh I'd my God. We would all die, experience. man. Or hellish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, roll for damage. You know, uh, yeah, it, uh, it would be, it would be quite the treat. Yeah. I don't know that I would want to, I don't know that I would want to participate in an adventure where he's the GM because I probably would not emerge alive. He would probably just kill us all. Um, no, it's, it's a lot of fun though, because, you know, it keeps, it keeps things fresh. It keeps things from getting into a rut or stale as far as these books go. Uh, so I, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, I have a lot of fun. I mean, I'll give him grief about it when I see him. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> so, uh, and I did give him a little grief about it when we saw each other last month and I'll give him more grief when I see him next month. But, uh, otherwise, uh, it's fine. Sounds like you would hug him, not choke. I him. would, I would choke him and then hug him, you know, <laughs> <laughs> little I'd, hug him. A little yeah, I'd hug him while he caught his breath, you know, get the blood, <laughs> the blood flowing. Awesome. Well, you know, in a rut or, or, you know, boring, this book definitely wasn't because I really, really enjoyed this one. So, you know, another really great addition, I think, to the, the Trek lit collection yes. for sure. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun to write. Thank you very much. Excellent. Well, we know you have, of course, as we talked about before, the Klingon travel guide coming up next month. That'll be available. Is there anything else kind of on the horizon that our listeners should be on the lookout for, whether it's Trek related or otherwise? I was going to say uh, the two books that I'll have coming out in addition to the travel guide um, are not Star Trek. Um, the first one is an anthology of short stories. Uh, it's called Maximum Velocity. And they are, it is a best of collection. Um, I was an editor uh, for a book of uh, science fiction or military science fiction short stories several years ago called Space Grunts, which was an installment within a larger group of anthologies called Full Throttle Space Tales. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, just old fashioned science fiction, you know, uh, balls out science fiction, you know, kind of pulpy, kind of retro. Um, there were five different anthologies in that series that was printed by a publisher called Flying Pen Press. And um, the five editors of those anthologies, actually it's four editors because one guy did two. The four of us got together and pitched the idea of doing a best of anthology. Uh, so we took we each took uh, turns reading each other's anthologies and picking out the best of what we thought were the best. And uh, Kevin J. Anderson's publishing company, Wordfire, will be publishing this best of anthology later this month. Uh, so watch for that. Um, the other uh, the other editors in the anthology are David Lee Summers, uh, Jennifer Brozek, Carol Heitchu, and Brian Thomas Schmidt. Schmidt. I think I just got the numbers wrong. It's six anthologies edited by five people, not five edited by four. I forgot to count myself like a bonehead just then. Uh, <laughs> 
So, and then the other one is uh, I have a also Brian, by Brian Thomas Schmidt. He's the editor of a, an anthology called If It Bleeds, and it's a collection of all new Predator short stories, you know, the Predator film franchise. Uh, it's coming out in October. And of course, I've got the, uh, I've got the, my contribution to Star Trek Adventures. It'll be out in the late summer. Was that August? I think they're shipping that book. So, yeah. and I've got, I've got other stuff I'm working on, but I'm not at liberty to talk about this stuff, some of the stuff. So, Awesome. Well, where can people find you on the World Wide Web if they're looking to, you know, stalk you and pester you about, you know, what's coming up for Star Trek? <laughs> I am still at and forever will be at DaytonWar.com. And uh, as folks know, it's most of the, the regular re listeners will know that it's basically a portal to my social media platform. So it'll have my blog and links to my Facebook page and my Twitter feed and my Instagram and uh, stuff like the, the articles I write for StarTrek.com and other websites. DaytonWar.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to to talk to us. Yeah, and happy birthday again. Thank you yeah, very yeah. much. And thanks for having me on. It's always fun talking to you guys. You keep me on my toes. Well, it's great to have Dayton here for the whole show. I mean, it really is the Dayton show this episode. So uh, there's just, there was so much to talk about in this novel hearts and minds. I, I really enjoyed it. And so I'm glad we had the chance to just hear his take on it. Yeah, definitely. And and not only that, but so much other stuff that, you know, he's got a hand in and he's got a part in, you know, it, it's, it's great when they, when Star Trek uses the talent they have to create all these really wonderful, really cool things. I mean, you know, the Klingon guide, I'm, I'm so looking forward to that. I really can't wait to get my hands on that, but you know, Klingon travel plans and vacation destinations are not the only thing that we've been talking about on the Trek FM network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, the 602 Club. I like that the relationship isn't quite what I was expecting. I think that Palpatine and Vader really had a lot still to work on between each other. Meta Trex. Garrick really typifies, personifies that snake-like way of kind of slithering around in the shadows, more subtle than any other character well, in the Star Trek universe. Plain, simple Garrick would be the first to say that the clothes make the Cardassian. <laughs> Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. This episode was actually banned by the BBC for many years. And they always said, I don't know if this is true, not so much because of the kind of allegorical significance of the episode, but because of this uh, single line in it where Data says, he basically says, oh, well, you know, the IRA basically achieved what they wanted in I think 2024. 2024, it's, yeah. You know, it's uh, <laughs> coming up yeah. pretty close now. <laughs> the Ready Room. I feel like the whole thing is summarised really nicely, actually, by a little line that is said between her and Chakotay once he shows up, which is he says to her, oh, you could probably run that power plant. And she says, why would I want the responsibility? And I just think that's incredibly telling. You know, there's something in there that's that's tired, I think, after seven years of this endless responsibility where she's constantly having to compromise herself for the mission that she's set for herself. 
And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most of the third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to take an active role in helping keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. I almost want to make a song out of that. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. You know, we'd really love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. So the best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that. There's a form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. That will come right to us, and you can find the network on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as what we're currently reading so you know what's coming up for future shows. There are also great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd also like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and Brandon Shemutala for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not calling up Captain Picard to give him heck for, well, you know what he did, where can we find you? Picard, you will never advance past Captain. But you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can also find me on the Star Wars Report podcast, talking, of course, Star Wars with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman. So check us out on StarWarsReport.com. And, of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, the Babel Conference on Facebook. And, Dan, when you're not on Kronos having a nice vacation and getting away from it all, where can people find you? You know, I was having a nice leisurely meal reading Hearts and Minds by Dayton Ward, and I looked up and my entire plate of food crawled away. I have no idea where it went, but, you know, I paid good money for it. It's really frustrating. But when I'm not dealing with that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Productions, and on youtube.com slash Productions, where I make videos talking about... You guessed it, Star Trek, of course, that's all I ever do. And you can also find me on the Babel Conference, also talking about Star Trek. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and until next time, live long 
and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. 